Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 105 of UAB Green and Told, original release Monday, August 28th, 2023. Through our podcast, we are given the opportunity to share stories from members of the UAB community. Listen to previous episodes of Green and Told at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold on Spotify and the Apple Podcast app. While there, I'd like to encourage you to leave a written review to help more alums find us. I'm Greg Berry, a UAB alum and director of communications in the Office of Alumni Affairs. Have you ever had a time that you just didn't feel complete, like something wasn't right? It's a feeling many of us, if not all, experience at various points of our lives, even UAB's new football coach, Trent Dilfer. I woke up one morning, I just, something was off. Like I just, I didn't have purpose. Uh, I was not as good a version of me as I once was. And my kids started noticing it, my wife started noticing it. For Dilfer, the something missing in his life was football and more precisely, coaching. As he'll share, roaming the sidelines working with others was something he had already been doing when his NFL career was winding down. The back half of my career, I almost count as training ground for coaching because I was more of a coach player than I was a player. A playing career in which he enjoyed plenty of success, even winning a Super Bowl following the 2000 season with the Baltimore Ravens. But coach will admit that the success he enjoyed in the league almost didn't happen. You know, I lost my edge a little bit. It's like I had gotten there. Um, the easiest way to say is I had that I got there a mentality instead of I'm still earning it mentality, and I wish I could go back and change. Following a very successful stint in coaching at a private high school in Nashville, Trent Dilfer was named UAB's head football coach in late 2022. Later this week, he'll lead the Blazers out onto the field for the first time. Sure, we can talk X's and O's all day long, but that won't shed a light on the man behind the whistle. Born in the central coast of California, what you imagine as a stereotypical Californian is probably right. Board shorts, flip-flops, and skateboards were all part of Trent's life. It was a life in which he had two homes, one with his mom, one with his dad. My parents got divorced when I was young. They lived across town. My dad lived... Uh, in Capitola, my mom lived in Aptos. Stepdad came into my picture when I was five. He's awesome. Kind of got raised by two dads. And uh, it, was, it was a cool childhood. I can imagine you being just a very active, very athletic kid growing up. Were you involved in a lot of sports? Yeah, everything. My mom's philosophy, she was a gymnastics coach, owned a gym. And her kind of parenting philosophy was um, keep me busy to keep me out of trouble. So I, I did gymnastics, swam, track and field, golf, baseball, football, basketball, uh, boogie boarded, beach volleyball, skateboarded, you know, you name it, whatever it was. I, I was always busy. As great stories of they had a Volkswagen Bannigan. And they kept an entire closet of uniforms in it for me. So they would take me from one sport to the next, to the next. And uh, I kind of grew up eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the van again and going from practice to practice. Did you ever get tired? I don't remember ever getting tired. Um, no, I was, I loved being active. And it got to the point when I got older and you couldn't back up all the sports, they would lock me out of the house. Like literally I'd be banging on the door. Can I come in? They're like, no, not till you shoot a thousand free throws. So uh, I was stuck outside uh, until dinner time. Throughout your junior high, high school days, were you still playing multiple sports or did you start to kind of whittle it down? Cause ultimately you became a football player. 
Uh, no, I never whittled it down. I actually lettered in four sports, football, basketball, track. I would just run in the track and field events. I never really practiced, but then I played baseball one spring and golf for three springs. So um, every year it was every sport. I'm still a believer in that. We still, in fact, we, we emphasize recruiting dual sport athletes. Mm -hmm. I think it teaches you how to fit a role in another sport, teaches you how to be a part of a team, get coached by different people. Um, there's, there's just athletic crossover um, training that helps. I think it's injury prevention. There's a lot of reasons for dual sports and, uh, or multiple. So I'm, I'm a big believer in them. And plus, we want our kids here to you know hit their peaks when they're in college, not when they're in high school. And what you're seeing with a lot of specialized athletes is they peak in high school and they get over-recruited. Or we'd rather recruit a kid that his best stuff is coming in college instead of what just happened in high school. Did you have a favorite sport? Surely you did. Basketball. Basketball has always been my first love as a player. Um, now, I enjoy golf more. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I just wasn't as good. So uh, I was more recruited as a basketball player than I was a football player. Uh, it's hard to believe that now. But, you know, I had a chance to go play in like that lower level Division One basketball. A lot of opportunities there. So you're Santa Clara, St. Mary's, Gonzaga before it was a monster um, the kind of that West Coast, lower level Division One track was where I would have played and contributed as a college basketball player. But my my ceiling, my future was in football. And thanks to my stepdad, he was the one that kind of pointed that out to me. When did you realize you had something special with football? You know, I went to a camp at Cal Berkeley before my senior year, and I went as a quarterback. There were 14 quarterbacks there, and quickly I realized I was number 14. Um, but they allowed me to go play tight end wide receiver and I won MVP of the camp. And I realized then that athletically, physically, I could do it. Um, and then that kind of fueled my senior year. Although I was not a highly productive quarterback, I knew I could do it once I was taught some stuff. So uh, instead of going to a Pac-12, Pac-10 at the time, Pac-10 school and playing tight end or outside linebacker, uh, I bet on my chance of learning bet on my chances of learning how to play quarterback and you roll the dice and and you did win because ultimately you had a very successful career at fresno state you went in the nfl had a successful career in the nfl even won a super bowl what was it like working your way through fresno going into the nfl and and enjoying the success that you did you know i i it's always a hard question to answer i um I was so locked in in college of getting better. You know, I, it was kind of my my daily mantra was what could I get better at? So I was always working on something. And then when the scouts started coming around and, you know, people started saying, hey, there's a chance you can play in the NFL. I think that fueled my file, fire more. You know, I worked harder instead of not working as hard and, and just kind of kept pushing, pushing, pushing. and. Then I had a chance to leave out. So I left early. I left after my junior year. That was a hard decision because at the time it was not common. You know, this is 1994. I think only one or two years beforehand were guys leaving early. So it was kind of a new thing and wasn't really sure. And really what flipped it was we only had like one or two starters coming back um, if I were to come back. So I didn't know how good we would be. I had a chance to be, I was being told at the time I might be the first pick of the draft. So uh, you know, tough opportunity to pass up. And then I got in the league and, you know, unfortunately, and, and this is a lot large reason why I coach and what I try to help kids with is 
you know, I lost my edge a little bit. It's like I had gotten there. Um, the easiest way to say is I had that I got there a mentality instead of I'm still earning it mentality. And I wish I could go back and change. I think I would have been a much more successful pro. I think I would have been better earlier on. I think I would have reached my potential as a player, which I don't believe I ever did. So then it's then it's this roller coaster of, oh gosh, I've, I've got stuck behind the eight ball here and I got to find a way out. And I've dug myself a hole. I got to dig my way out. And uh, that's really what years four, five, six were, were digging myself out of a hole that I had created years one through three. Luckily, I was able to do that. And by that time, I'd become a pro. You know, I truly had professional habits, handled myself in kind of a way that was set apart from other professionals. But now my body has started to break down. So unfortunately, I was never able to, to match the peak of my athletic performance with the peak of my emotional, uh, mental performance. So uh, then it's kind of this back half of my career was I was a pro. I was really smart. I could do all the XO stuff. I knew what you were doing before you did it. But physically, I was very average. I was very average the second half of my career. Uh, had had suffered a bunch of injuries and um, just didn't have the juice that I once had. So, um, you know, that's kind of the, the back half of my career. I almost count as training ground for coaching because I was more of a coach player than I was a player um, involved in game planning with my coaches, involved in day-to-day, -day you know, game day operations in terms of calling plays and dissecting defenses and all those different things. So, I think the second half of my career was much more uh, cerebral than it was physical. And now that I look back at it, it, it makes sense why I'm doing what I'm doing now, because a lot of that was training ground to, to become a coach one day. Growing up, did you ever think coaching? You know, my parents always said yes. My mom has always said, always, even when I was a you know, teenager, that I had this ability to communicate complex things in a simple way that I could teach somebody how to do something that they couldn't do. Um, you know, I've played a ton of golf in my life. At one time I was pretty, pretty decent. I was a plus three handicap and um, I taught people how to play golf. Even though I'm not a golf instructor, I could always find like what they were doing wrong and be like, Oh, if you just fix that, it would fix like four or five other things. Yeah. And uh, I just, I, I've always had that eye, I guess it's an analytical eye. Um, so, yeah, my parents have always thought I would coach. A lot of my friends always thought I would coach. And honestly, I wanted to coach. I, I didn't coach because I had daughters, you know, and you know, I had three girls. What we'd gone through as a family was obviously very traumatic, us losing our son. He was our second. Um, and I didn't want to ever make them feel as if I was abandoning them for a bunch of boys. And it really was that simple. Like, they lost a brother. I didn't want to see, I didn't want them to see their dad go leave them for a bunch of boys because when a girl's young or brain's not fully developed, that could easily be misinterpreted. Uh, so that's why I didn't coach. If I would have had boys, I bet you I would have, you know, they could have come around the locker room. They could have been around me, but uh, I, I ran from coaching. I had dozens and dozens of opportunities to coach in the NFL uh, coming out of the league while I was at ESPN. Um, just, it wasn't for me at the time. Are you okay talking about your son? Absolutely. Yeah. When you lost your son, how did your perspective on the game, on life, on family change? Huh. Big question. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I think there's a lot of layers to this. I think number one, nothing changed because we were rooted in our faith. Yeah. Start there. Um, it tests your faith for sure. Like you're not, it's not, it, does, it goes from kumbaya, go to church to real life stuff. Um, but it, that was a good thing that, you know, it, it, it uh, matured our faith dramatically as a family. I think you cherish the the moments a lot of times as parents we think are mundane. Um, you know, I'll use driving, for example. We lived in the Bay Area while I was at ESPN in California and you're in your car all the time. Like it's 25 to 40 minutes to take the kids to school, 25 to 40 to pick them up, an hour and a half taking them to volleyball that night, an hour taking them back. I mean, it was it was relentless the amount of time we spent in the car. Uh, and instead of making those mundane, tedious hours, they become fruitful hours. You know, they're the opportunities to be one-on-one or one-on-two with your kids. And sometimes we do family events. We just all jump in the car together to go to a practice, to, to be together. Um, we cherished our, our times when we didn't have a kid's sport and we were able to sit down at the dinner table or, um, you know, road trips with volleyball became little mini vacations. Uh, it changed how I decided to do my work schedule when I retired from the NFL and had, again, had a few coaching opportunities, more than a few. It was that or uh, go to ESPN. And we, we, we as a family chose ESPN because it created some freedom, some work-life balance opportunity to work really hard for a couple days of the week across the, across the country, but be back home and be together. I think it changed my role as a father. Uh, more than just a provider and all that stuff. Like I, I, I enjoy do, helping my wife out with the domestic things around the house, with carpooling, with going, taking the kids to play dates, with whatever it is. Like just think of all the things we do raising kids. We kind of co-parented. There was never the dad goes to work and mom raises the kids. It was we're raising the kids together and dad will find time to work. Uh, it created an honesty and a transparency in our household. That I, you, I think people are seeing in me as a coach, like I just don't really have a filter. Um, I don't sugarcoat anything. I kind of let people know, let people get inside and see what's inside there. Some don't like it, some do. But as a family, we were that way too. Like we handled conflict in the moment. We didn't let it take a small thing and build into a big thing. Um, we, we communicated about everything that they knew to tell me the truth, even if it was a hard truth. Um, you know, I, I think you just long-winded answer of saying, I think you're, you become more raw as sure. a family. You, you, you take that facade off that we tend to do in our family environments and, and ours, we just don't have one. The Dilfers don't have one of those. And I think a lot of that's because we cherish the time that we're together and we don't want little things um, getting in the way of that. I imagine the Dilfer household was very similar to when you were a kid, constantly going, constantly playing sports because all three of your girls wind up playing division one sports. Was that yeah. the case? Yeah. The rule was they had to be doing something Yeah, and it wasn't only sports. I mean, you know, Maddie did dance and, um, Tori has an artistic bug to her and they played musical instruments for a while. I think a couple of them tried out for plays. Um, but yeah, they're always had to do something. There was no downtime. We, we just didn't believe in downtime weekends. We'd give them downtime. You know, there's definitely a time to, to rest and recover and, and have some me time. But, uh, midweek there wasn't going to be like Wednesday nights. Hey, I'm going to go to the mall with my friends. Like that just didn't happen on our watch. 
we just felt like that was an opportunity to uh, for bad bad things to happen. We felt like they were more protected, more stimulated uh, with an activity, something that they could, you know, have a challenge in front of them. Um, something where they, you know, I use the mountain climbing analogy a lot. Like there was always a mountain to climb. There was always a challenge. Uh, I thought that taught them a lot of grit, a lot of substance, a lot of figure it outness. Um, it was exhausting as parents, but worth every every second of it. So, yeah, very, very, very active household and academics was a priority. You know, I, I joke about this, but I mean it. I tell our players this all the time. You know, like I've never in my parenting ever told them what letter grade they needed to get. Uh, the standard was simply do your best, whatever your best is. And, uh, it was also important because we felt like academics was how they learned how to learn. It wasn't what they were learning. Um, frankly, I think they learn a lot of stuff they probably don't need to learn, but they learn how to learn. And, and I think that's a valuable skill. And uh, obviously it's, it's worked for them. As the girls got older, things kind of changed for you because you did finally get into coaching. You started mm -hmm. off in high school, obviously. Talk about what kind of brought you back to the game and why was that the right time to coach yeah it was super interesting I I this is kind of my favorite part of the journey you know I I had retired from TV in 19 and uh, moved to sorry not 19 17 and moved to Austin uh, we wanted to get out of California uh, we had been looking at Austin Nashville Denver some areas and settled on Austin with some dear friends there still do and um you know i was lucky i was in a position where i could retire and and play golf every day i was getting i had some small business interests i had some investments i was being courted to do some consulting blah 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 blah, blah. but basically retired sure. and i was going to chase our kids around you know two of them were playing college volleyball and the third delaney was getting ready to so we were actually looking for the, one of these giant rvs and we were going to spend six months of the year on the road, go visiting our friends in football and the SEC and the NFL and Mountain West and do all that. And then watch our girls play volleyball on the weekend and, and then be retired the other half of the year. And, and I, I woke up one morning, I just, something was off. Like I just, I didn't have purpose. Uh, I was not as good a version of me as I once was. And my kids started noticing it. My wife started noticing it. And it was around that time I realized like, you know, we weren't wired to retire at 40 something years old. Um, there were still mountains to climb. And, but the challenge was we had just moved Delaney from California where she was doing great to Austin where she had acclimated fine, but I didn't want to like change her life again. And, yeah. and really she was the one, the other two didn't have a real voice in this. Like they gave their opinion, but Delaney, I needed her to release me. You know, she needed, it needed to be her wanting me to do this because it was going to take a tremendous family sacrifice and and she did in fact she she felt led even before i asked and she was before she was prompted to say something she was on board for graduating high school early which was really hard for her she had to take uh, an incredible load of classes in the in the fall of her senior year uh to graduate early got all a's doing it um so that they can meet me in Nashville. And then I lived by myself for nine months. You know, I lived in an office at a high school with a dog. And that's what people forget was, you know, like we made a huge sacrifice to go to Nashville and change that community uh, or spearhead the change in that community. And uh, my family is, 
you know, had as much to do that, with that as I did. So, um, you know, I'd fly back. I, I wore out Southwest Airlines that year. It was, you know, leave Nashville, uh, go watch Delaney play on Tuesday, come back first thing uh, Wednesday morning, had to change how the team practiced around that just to be able to be involved in her life for senior year, the fall of her senior year. Yeah. But it was good because she ended up coming to Nashville the spring of her senior year, enrolled in college early, and we kind of reunited as a family. But that was tough. That, that was a really tough stretch. But it was them. It was all of them that kind of released me to do so. And, um, and we're all very pleased that it went that way because I think as a family, they've really enjoyed this, this ride uh, that I've taken coaching. Was coaching all that you thought it would be when you first got into it in 2019, 2020? Yeah, it's better. It's way better. Uh, you know, I my perception of coaching when I got into it was uh, what my NFL experience was matched with a little bit of this Elite 11 kind of grassroots experience, but it definitely was not the the true 360 of coaching. And um, I didn't realize, now even though my – my parents were educators. My, my stepdad was a coach. I probably should have known this, but the impact that you have uh, on a young person if done right, or the positive if done right, but also the negative if done wrong. Um, you know, your extension of the parenting process many times. In fact, at the high school level, I'd argue you're kind of co-parenting if you're given permission to do so by the parents. Um, and even at this level, it's amazing how the the relationships in a short amount of time are, you know, trump the ambition or the trying to win a game uh, or building of a program or remodeling of a program. It's it's amazing how these these relationships don't just impact the kids, but they impact us as coaches. So, um, you know, there's opportunity to go parent boys. You know, I, I said that my pain has been repurposed into passion. I don't think I've ever been um, criticized for not having enough passion. Maybe not enough hair, maybe not enough intelligence, <laughs> but not enough passion has never been a question. And a lot of that's my pain in my life. My personal story has been repurposed and it's repurposed into a passion for these kids, both at Lipscomb here, um, doing things a certain way, you know, having high standards, expecting high standards, helping them become better members of society. I'll, I've said this too, and I think this is one of the coolest parts of coaching. Football is not the most important thing that happens on a campus. It's really not. It's not in the Southeast even. There are many things that are probably as important or more important. It's hard to argue that more things are more impactful. Um, and there's a there's a real difference there. Um, many things are as important or more important. But football tends to impact a community, impact a campus mm -hmm. um, more so than most things. I'm not going to say everything, but more so than most things. And it's really cool when you do it right and you get a, a building full of people, whether that building is 100 people in high school or 200 people here or whatever it grows into, that that group of people can impact a community uh, for the better if done right. And I've seen that happen at one level, and I'm excited to see it happen at this level. You spent three years? Four years at Lipscomb. Four years. Four, four years. years at Lipscomb. And you turned the program around from five and five to undefeated. So you, things really turned around. But what was the biggest challenge as a new coach, even at the high school level? Very similar to all level. There hasn't been that big a difference, okay. uh, to be honest with you. I, I think this has been easier in the sense that so much groundwork had been laid. Um, you know, it's not like this place was fledged, you know, 
falling apart when I got here. It, was, it had a very strong foundation. It's had great leadership. It's had good players. It's had good support. Um, when I got to Lipscomb, it was a dust bowl. I there were 36 kids on that roster. My first spring lift, and six of them had to lift a PVC PVC pipe because they weren't strong enough to lift a bar. Um, they had de, de divested, sorry, in football completely. They hadn't raised money. They didn't care. Uh, frankly, the administration didn't want it uh, outside of a handful of them. Um, the community involvement was next to none. So really you were, you were changing the thought process of a lot of people. You're trying to convince them that this could be a good thing. Um, and then you were fighting against the grain on a lot of things too. So that was nothing short of a miracle, what we did at Lipscomb. And, and I say we, I, it starts with uh, faithful prayer. <laughs> it started with a lot of divine intervention. Uh, it, then it, there was a lot of really good people that I surrounded myself. And then a lot of really good people that rallied uh, to make that thing happen. People give me the credit for it. I, I would not, you know, I, I deflect a lot of that because it took so many people to, to pull that thing off. But I learned a lot of lessons along the way, and one of them was it does take everybody. You know, we can't feel protective. We can't do the things we want to do in the American. We can't win championships unless everybody has a hand in that. And we go, oh, that's just that, that sounds cool, coach. But it's true. If you go and look at championship programs at any level, it's not just the football program. It's not just the basketball program. It's, just the, it's the community. It's everybody getting behind them and saying, we're going to pour gasoline on what you're doing, program. Uh, and, and that's what we need to have happen here, frankly, is, is we need everybody um, to pour, help pour gasoline on what we're trying to do. And if we, get, if we do that, if we get that, we'll be massively successful. Um, but it's not something you can just do as a coach. Like I've said this so many times, and I, I think the more I say it, the more I believe it. I think the head football coach in college football is probably the most overrated person in the building, um, except for who he hires. And maybe I can take that one, one step further, except for who he hires and who he rallies. Um, so I think my primary, primary job here is to hire great people, which I've done, and then rally great people, uh, the people of Birmingham to get behind this and say, hey, if, if we can all um, invest in this thing, uh, if we can all wrap our arms around it, it's good for everybody. Because when you win in football and when you have kids that do life the right way and impact your community properly, everybody wins. It's why everybody works so hard to bring football back. You know, I think sometimes we don't need a history lesson, but we can we can learn from the lessons of history. And there was a reason why so much investment went into bringing football back here because it's really good for the city of Birmingham. Um, well, winning football here dominant winning football here, um, a city on fire for winning football here would be great for the city of Birmingham. But again, it's going to take everybody. What did you know about UAB and the football program? Did you know anything? A little bit. I um, They had recruited a couple of our players at Lipscomb. I have a friend whose son walked on here, um, played for Bill. Uh, I knew a Bill in football circles, just as a really good football coach, a great defensive mind. Um, I didn't know much about Birmingham. We have really close friends uh, here that we sit on a board with. So they, what I knew of Birmingham is what they had told us. Um, but that was about it. It was, it was kind of, it was exciting to learn 
about this city. Everything that I learned has been reinforced. Uh, it's exceeded expectations even. Uh, but yeah, I think a lot of this, I said this in my opening press conference, I'd be lying to tell you that uh, I knew a lot. Uh, I did promise that I'd figure it out. And I, and I do think I'm doing that. What is the biggest surprise about Birmingham? Not even UAB, just Birmingham the since food. you've been living here. The food. I had no idea it was one of the great food towns in America. And we're, we're foodies. Uh, a lot of people that saw my belly grow exponentially in the months that I took this job, I, I frequented a lot of them. I've since lost some weight. But uh, yeah, no, the food's incredible. I love the people. I've been blown away by how welcoming and authentic the people have been. And I'm probably jaded a little bit because my time in California, my time in Austin, my time in Nashville, three cities that have become very surface, maybe fake <laughs> to a certain degree, three areas are kind of fake, uh, to, to see that just authenticity of people here, um, the welcoming nature, the friendliness has been, has been really, a neat thing for for me and my family you come into the program at an interesting time as it joins the aac how challenging is it going to be this fall and what are your expectations well i think football is hard in general i've always answered these questions on football expectations this way football is hard no matter how good if you're alabama it's hard and if your team is expected to win zero games it's hard and it's probably equally hard because with high expectations comes different challenges with low expectations comes other challenges but football by nature is hard um, the journey you go on through the course of a season and in college football really it's a 365 calendar like you're always doing something football in college football there's just a lot of challenges in general, and you have to decide, are you going to look at those as problems or are you going to look at them as opportunities? And and we look at them as opportunities. Those challenges excite me. Uh, I think that the conference talent pool is very high. They have very good coaches. Uh, there's some tough road trips. And, you know, you have to play in really hot weather and you have to play in really cold weather. You have to play in the south. You have to play in the northeast. Um, there's just, you know, a lot of challenges. You got to play against different schemes. You got to play against an air raid uh, to a West Coast to a you know wishbone Navy offense. Um, like there's all kinds of things that excite me because it's going to be stimulating to rally each week. I think there's natural challenges being an SEC country where you know the premier program in the world for the past 20 years is right down the street. Uh, where another premier program in the SEC is a, SEC is a couple hours away. Uh, I think there's natural challenges with that, but there's also opportunities in that. So I think there's a there, to me, I'm excited about those things. I think our people are excited about those things. Uh, you know, college football right now have a very curmudgeon approach. The woe is me. Oh, we wish the good old days were back. You know, you hear a lot of that, and what that's not the vibe here you know we don't know any other way we're excited about this way this is the way we know and and we're looking for solutions uh in the midst of these challenges so but that's all lip service you know what i mean like i say it all the time like everybody's got the cool phrases and the cool signs on their walls and their buildings who, who are the people that can be about it every day not just talk about it but be about it and i think that's been the most fun the most fun is waking up at around five every morning. You know, some days it's four, some days it's five fifteen, but it's around five, and jump out of bed knowing you got a boatload of 
uh, climbing to do that day. And uh, at the end of the day, you're going to try to get to the top of the hill and then you're going to fall back down it, metaphorically, and climb it again the next day. And you keep doing that, then you're being about it. And we're doing winning things every day in this building, uh, every moment of every day. And and I think you start stacking those up. We, we I talk a lot to my people about cumulative effect. Uh, the cumulative effect of good habits, good decision-making, big climbing, uh, perseverance, all these different things is championships. I've seen it. I've done it. I've lived it. I've lived it at different levels. Uh, I think I have some credibility there. Uh, now it's just getting everybody to climb with me. That's coach Trent Dilfer. In November 2022, Dilfer was introduced as UAB's newest head coach. While he is new to the campus community, he has definitely put a lot of thought into what it means to be a Blazer. This is my first iteration, so get, give me another chance at this another time. In my short time here, I'd say there's a great deal of pride in being a Blazer. There's a blue-collar toughness to being a Blazer. I think when you're a Blazer also, it's more than just playing for the team that you're playing for or working for the hospital that you work for, working in the department that you work for. Uh, I've noticed that if you're a Blazer, you're, it's bigger than you. Um, you, represent, you represent something bigger than you. And uh, that's, that's a message that's a core value of mine that I've tried to express to this team, but I've noticed it all over this institution. I've noticed it in this city that people are true Blazers, you know, the ones that went here, that are teaching here, that are serving here, that are working here, that are playing here, that are coaching here, uh, it's bigger than them. Uh, I think that's why our athletic department leads the conference and community service hours. It's why they won the academic award, because I think everybody here is bought into something bigger than just trying to win a game or hit a bottom line or teach a class or whatever it is, I think they, they truly inside them say, you know what, this is, this is bigger than the thing I've been called to do, uh, and it affects a lot of people. Be sure to check out past episodes of the UAB Green and Told podcast. Listen in at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Have a story to share or know someone who does? Email greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search UAB Alumni on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and until next time, Go Blazers!